But good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to be with you. you can grab your Bibles. We're going to be in James chapter 5. We've got a few short weeks left in the book of James. Pray you've been encouraged, challenged. It's a, it's a challenging book in many ways, but uh, I feel like uh, I was talking to Pastor Bill about this. There's some ways in which we may look back at the book of James and really feel like it did some really significant work in our hearts. Um, I don't know how many of you would fit in this category. Some, sometimes there are people who, when you wake them up from their sleep, they startle with such ferocity. If they had a gun, they'd probably shoot you as soon as they woke up. Anybody fit in that category? You're just a little bit wild when you wake up. You wake up fairly abruptly and, and uh, a little bit wildly. And the six verses we're going to read this morning um, might feel a little bit like that. They're, just, they're startling just enough to where you're not even quite sure how to react because some of the language that we're going to see is, is very heavy. Um, James, in a way that maybe we shouldn't be surprised by at this point, uh, speaks very directly and unapologetically to the rich in James 5, 1 through 6. And so one of the things I think it's helpful for us to do, necessary for us to do, is to be sure that we don't detach ourselves when we hear about the rich person. Um, because we might be able to just categorize, like, hey, well, I don't, I don't have to deal with that because I'm not rich, therefore this doesn't apply to me, and, and may the Lord be with everybody it applies to, right? So, but that's not how we should treat this text. And if you just even practically look at the world, and I share this several months ago in a different message. I don't even recall which message. But when you look at the landscape of the world, the fact of the matter is, if you're in this room, you're among likely the top 1% of the rich in the world. If you make 60000 or more in an, on an annual basis, you are more prosperous and rich than 99% of the world. The median income annually in the world is $2,800. So just in case... We want to shift ourselves to a realm of being untouched by the rich. Let's just remember how much we have just for a second, that it might ground us a little bit, humble us before this text. And there's a specific way that James is certainly talking about those who are materially rich. And we'll hear much about that this morning. And the, the set of songs that we sang, and you may have caught even some of this thread um, really helped us think about the way that we the way that we look at things, what we what we see, what we behold. And someone once said that you become what you behold. And so the main idea in this text that I'd submit to you, and some of this wording isn't even in these passages, would be something like this: that beholding the riches of heaven will protect us from holding on to the riches of the world. That looking to heaven will loosen our hands from this earth. Beholding Christ will keep us from holding on to the world. And I would submit to you that's at least the motivation of James's addressing the rich in this section. So let's read James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can grab a chair Bible. It's on page 952. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to take one of those with you. It's our, our gift to you so you can have God's word for yourself. James chapter 5. This is God's word for us, starting in verse 1. It says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. It will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wow, right? So if you look back just a little bit in chapter 4, you'll see that there's a, there's a common beginning to chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 that we went through last week. It's a statement, come now. And so many people kind of lump these two sections as kind of a unit, but we're going to deal with them separately. And it really does give us the, the feel accurately that James is very much dealing with different groups of people, different perspectives, all of which probably touch us in different ways and in varying degrees. But obviously he zeroes in on the rich person in this section. But it isn't the first time that James has addressed the rich person in his letter. And remember, like this letter is circulated to the dispersed Christians in the first century, most of them Jewish Christians. And so he quite literally, this letter quite literally would have been read in a church, in a gathering of the people of God. And so when you go back to chapter 1 in James, if you flip there just real quickly in verses 9 through 11, this is the first time in the book that James speaks to the, the rich. And he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich brother in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So he begins in chapter 1 even talking about just the fleeting nature of riches. That we should boast in our humiliation, being made low before God. Because we see the biblical theme that, that those who are humbled will be exalted, right? But chapter 2 as well deals with this, and maybe a way that's really helpful for chapter 5. I found it a really helpful picture as I was studying this week. So when you looked at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll kind of skip through a few verses, and then 5 through 7. Here's what it says. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, that's an important part, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. He goes on to talk about don't show favoritism to the rich man and, and don't put away the poor man seeking to make them less. So he's dealing with this sin of partiality and favoritism based on particularly just social or even wealth status. But he goes on in verse 5, that same section in James 2. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So here's the picture that I want to paint as we think about this text. Is when you think about the makeup of the church, the gathering of believers that this letter would have been read in front of, you very much can envision that group made up of faithful believers who are seeking to live their life for Jesus, some of whom are poor, 
and some of whom are rich materially. And you have, so you have rich believers who are operating in faithfulness, but then you also have this category of those who are blaspheming the name of God, but yet still come into the assembly. Did you catch that part? So there are rich men, possibly women, likely mostly men, coming into the church and the gathered assembly who aren't Christians who are materially rich. And so James is, I would say, focused addressing that group, but yet the benefit of his exhortation, it hits everybody in different ways. So you may, it's very possible in this room, you might fit into one or maybe multiple categories. You might be the believer, the faithful believer. You might not have much to your name. And we'll talk about the challenges for you in the realm of material things. You might be the Christian, the faithful believer who has a lot of earthly possessions and even money. You might be in this room and you might find yourself as the wealthy landowner who doesn't know God. You might also find yourself as the harvester, the one who's been deprived by the rich who have stepped on your back to gain their wealth. In all those cases, this passage deals with us. And one of the things, at the very least, that it does, that it should do for us, is really loosen our grip on our possessions, on the things that we have. And help us stand in humility before one another, because it's only by the grace of God that we are what we are, right? Amen? It's only by God's grace that we are what we are. So whether you look across the aisle at a different category of person, just know it's only by God's grace that you are what you are. But like an Old Testament prophet, James rebukes this ungodly, rich group, and in doing so, the people of God are warned about the, the dynamics of earthly riches. So there's three observations from this text that I want to make in the time that I've got before we do the Lord's Supper together. So three observations, all of which stand in contrast to faith in action, biblical, real, Christian faith, and there's three different observations. And I'm going to put them in the pronoun of they, speaking to the ungodly rich person. The first is what they do for riches. What they do for riches. The second is what riches do to them. And ultimately, the last one that's more practical for us is what they do with riches. And so the first one, I'm going to take these a little bit out of order just because it's the way I felt led to unpack it for us. Verse, verses four and six primarily, what they do for riches. Nope, sorry, that was the second one. Let me go back. No, it is. That's the right one. What they do for riches, verses four and six. So look at the text again. It says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 6, he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. So the ungodly rich defraud others by holding back what they deserve. So they didn't merely get their wealth on the back of other people. They actually defrauded those same people the very wages they depended on to live and survive. Proverbs 28.6 is better as a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Now, having, <clears throat> having worked in a corporate environment with State Farm for 15 years, every single year we would have two really significant surveys we had to do. An employee satisfaction survey and an employee opinion survey. And when you think about the dynamics as, a, as an employer or business 
owner, you have to realize that those who are most honored are the ones who are most effective and fruitful in their jobs. So there's a way in which, maybe for you this morning, one of the most practical things you can take away from this text is how are you handling your work as a business owner or leader or manager? Do you merely see the people who work for you as stepping stones to your own personal wealth and pursuits? Or do you see them as valuable, not just assets for your company, but people made in the image of God? And your posture is more, how can I be a blessing to my employees? How can I be a blessing to the harvesters, to those who work out in the fields as it were? Don't deprive, deny, or cheat those who are in God's kindness a blessing to you in your business? Do you take advantage of those in your care or leadership? Do you lead in such a way to give them every advantage you can as they help you build your business? Are you leveraging your power and platform for personal gain only? Or are you leveraging power and position? Maybe this is just something we all need to wrestle with. Like the things that God gives us, whether it be a business or whether it just be what you have in your home. Like do we see them as tools in the hands of God, given to us for ministry and to bless other people? Or do we see them just as mechanisms to increase our comfort and our standard of living in this world? And we all struggle with that. I don't need you to say amen, because I know that we do. Like We all struggle with just seeing the things that, that we have as just merely a tangible blessing for us, an enabling thing for us to be more secure and more comfortable but are you building your business through honesty, integrity, and a God-honoring concern for others? The irony in this text and in general is that ungodly business practices will destroy the very security that they try to create. And you see this promise in the scriptures. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. So at the end of this section in verse 6, as you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. It's a little bit difficult to discern. Again, you, you have a hard time believing that there were, there were rich people coming into the church who were actually murdering other people. It seems like it's maybe hyperbole, but the picture is this, when you think of the dynamics in the church, you have condemned and murdered them quite possibly via your neglect and withholding from them the wages that they need to survive. You've condemned and murdered them in that particular way. And the ones that you oppress, they do not resist you. And I would submit the picture there is because they don't have the means to resist you. That the oppressed, that the whole oppressor-oppressed relationship is that the picture here is that they're business owners stepping on the backs and even on the necks of those who work for them, condemning them in the process, oppressing them, ultimately even possibly causing them to lose their lives because they've withheld from them what they deserve. But in destroying the lives of others, James's message is, you bring destruction upon yourself. And so these words, this next section, what riches do to them, is simultaneously confronts the oppressor and comforts the oppressed. And this is really dark language. There's just no escaping it. Like, I want to make it sound different than it is. When you talk about the day of slaughter, 
When you talk about the miseries coming upon you, there's really no way to soften just the, the deep magnitude of the judgment of God upon those who are bringing misery upon other people. What riches do to them, when you look at verses 1 through 4, go back to the text with me. Go to verse, yeah, we'll read verse 1 again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So it may be that for some of you, what you need to hear is you need to feel and hear this text through the lens of the wealthy landowner. The one who in some measure has oppressed other people and maybe been dishonest in the way that you built your business. And maybe even one who's hoarding of wealth and leveraging your platform, disregarding the poor and defrauding others. And God's message from this text to you, if I'm not to soften it at all, at all is this. If you deprive others of what is due them in this life, you can be certain God will not deprive you of what is due to you in the life to come. And that's hard to say. That's hard to preach. But that's the essence of what James is saying. Like, don't think that just because you get your fill in this life, somehow it means that you're going to escape the judgment in the next life. That you may be able to soften the world around you right now, but there's no way when you meet God face to face, you're somehow going to be able to have leverage on him, the one who possesses all power. And James makes us think about how earthly injustice is heard in heaven. It isn't merely that individuals and families are mistreated and put at risk, but all of it is seen and heard by God himself. And in verse 4, the, the wages cry out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And the, the Lord of hosts is a, is a common Old Testament picture of God as like the, the commander of angel armies. It's a dreadful thing for those who oppose him, like a military commander bringing his judgment swiftly and fully and finally. And that picture is, you may possess influence and power here on earth, but if you do not mourn and weep and turn away from your wickedness, you will find yourself in the crosshairs of God's wrath, the almighty judge who possesses everlasting power and has no need of a jury because he alone will stand as judge over men's hearts and minds and motives and actions and in our financial dealings. And you may feel like the one who's been mistreated, like you may feel tangibly that mark of maybe the oppressed in various ways. And one of the encouragements that we'll see in verse 7 that I'll just briefly comment on is that there's a word of encouragement given to the suffering believers. And the word is this, be patient. Be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, because there's going to be a moment, there's going to be a time when God will right every wrong and every single account that's unbalanced here will be balanced. So he says, be patient. God is faithful. 
God is a just judge, and the picture in the Bible is that God is coming to judge the sinful and deliver his people. And I would just say this, and maybe you haven't been here with us in this series, and maybe these words strike with a certain force. You're like, wait a second, like, I thought there was good news to be found here. The very first command or commendation that James gives is to weep and to howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The wonder of the grace of God the picture in the Bible is that Jesus is going to come back. The first time he came as a suffering servant to die in our place. The second time he comes, he's going to come as a conquering king. And in between, in these last days, you have time. You have time to be broken. You have time, if you're confronted by your own frailty and sin, to turn to Jesus Christ and to find him gracious and able to save so the good news is only good in light of the bad. We have to understand like the desperate need of our situation. I was thinking about this coming in this morning. There's a way in which every single Sunday we, we have to be confronted with poverty and riches. Like every single one of us are desperately poor spiritually. Like we have no resources to commend ourselves before God. None. Every single one of us, like destitute spiritually, but the miracle of the Christian faith is that God takes people who are spiritually destitute and because of their faith in the finished work of Jesus, he makes us rich beyond all measure. The immeasurable riches of Christ, the grace poured out, like the mercy of God where he withholds from us what we deserve, the grace of God lavishly pouring out on us that which we don't deserve, namely forgiveness, and so, although we're poor, we are considered rich. Unimaginable exchange. And so, if you find yourself rattled by this picture of judgment, I want you to know that you can have hope today in these last days that you can look to Jesus and you can be forgiven. That you can look to Jesus and you can be adopted and part of his family, forever made new, forever accepted. And all of us desperately need that, more than we know. So much more than we know. For the ungodly rich, their hoarding of earthly treasure is presented against them in the court of God's judgment as both evidence and a witness. It speaks a word of testimony that says you may have your fill now, but it's only filling up the cup of God's wrath stored up for you in the end. If you've only invested in temporary gain, it's going to lead you to eternal loss. This picture of you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter is a really graphic picture. But it seems to be something like this. That if you go about trying to gorge yourself on the things of this earth, you're only storing up for yourself wrath on the day where you realize none of it mattered. You're just fattening yourself up here on earth filling your bag with things that ultimately won't make it in the end. They won't matter. At their best, they're meaningless. At the worst, they've stored up for you even a deeper eternal loss. You've heard the term probably money talks. There's even a song years ago called Money Talks. Some of us probably even said that at some point in our lives. And the picture of that statement is that money has an influence on our perspectives and our decisions. 
But I wonder if we think about it from our perspective as Christians, if our money actually could talk, if it stands before God as a witness, as evidence against or for our lives, what would it say? What would be its testimony? Because that's the picture given here. It's like the the wages and the things that we have, the things that we possess, they stand, particularly those that have been gained in selfishness. They stand in the presence of God speaking. And so how does your money talk? And I'm not talking about giving money to the church. But how do you steward what God has entrusted to you? The earth is the Lord's and everything it contains, right? And that includes what we have, our possessions and our money, our things, when it talks, does it sound like the voice of Jesus? And that kind of leads us into this last section, is what they do with riches. So as we think about the fact that the, the picture here for the ungodly rich is they, st- they store up, they amass for themselves riches on this earth. Verses 3 and 5, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Verse 5, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. So what I want to do is take the last few minutes to to contrast those two statements with the Christian life and with the voice of Jesus. So back to that picture, if our financial dealings, our financial stewardship, the way that we deal with our stuff speaks in the presence of God, does what it say sound like the voice of Jesus? Or does it sound like the voice of the world? James' indictment to the ungodly rich is that they're hoarding what they have, storing it up, laying it up, all these earthly possessions, tight-fisted with earthly treasures. They were laying up treasure, gold, silver, fine clothing in the last days. And those investments you made, the treasure you have stored up here, have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. I don't know how many of you have invested money in the in the markets at all, but every mutual fund prospectus, every literature related to investments will have a statement, something like this, if not this exact statement. Past performance is no guarantee for future results. So you can look backward at an investment and see what it did, but it has no guarantee of future results. If you're talking about earthly investments. That statement will always be true. And the reason that statement is present in that literature is because every single investment comes with risk when you're investing in the things of this world. It's an inescapable reality. Even the smallest risk is still a risk in the markets. It's true on this earth, but it's not true in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says this, and I can't help but think about how James's language seems to hearken to his half-brother Jesus' language in Matthew chapter 6. If you weren't here with us at the beginning of the book, this book was written by Jesus' half-brother James, who initially didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, went on to become central in his leadership in the church in Jerusalem in the first century, But listen to the similarity in Jesus' language in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you trying to find your security? Like, where are you laying up your treasures? And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't say don't lay up treasures anywhere. He just says it's the location that matters. Don't store up for yourself. Don't lay up for yourself treasures here, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Why? Because the return in heaven is guaranteed every single time. There's no need for some disclaimer that somehow there's no guarantee of future reward. The inheritance for the people of God who invest in heaven is an inescapable, incorruptible reality. There's an inheritance waiting for you, Christian, in heaven, protected by the power of God. And in that, there's some mysterious, wonderful way in which we can add to the reward that we'll get. As believers, we're going to stand before Jesus, the beam of seat, but it's not for the purpose of judgment, it's for the purpose of reward. And if we find ourselves, in just a metaphorical way, trying to carry with us the things of this world, what we're going to find, those things will burn away, and what will be left is the things that we did for eternity that can include what we do with our money. When we stand before God, there will be reward given to the people of God for their faithfulness in doing just that. And Jesus doesn't seem to be bashful about motivating us by that future reward. You see it later in Matthew 6 and in Matthew chapter 19. But here's one picture I want to share with you. It's very clear in the Bible. There's a unique risk to being a rich person. There's a unique risk that money brings along with it. That's what Jesus said. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. That's very clear. There's a unique risk to the rich person. And I don't have time to unpack all the reasons. Some of that is shared in this message. You see the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. He's like, hey, I've done pretty good with the law. And Jesus is like, well, you've done most things, but this one thing I have I want to ask you to do, I want you to take everything you have, I want you to sell it and give it to the poor. And his response is he walked away with great sorrow in his heart because he had a lot. He possessed a lot of things and he couldn't let them go. The issue was covetousness in his heart. It wasn't the fact that he had things, it's the fact that his heart was wrapped up in his things. But before we distance ourselves, maybe if we have little, Let me just state this. It is possible to love the things of this world even if we have very little. And I would submit to you, see this in Matthew 6 as Jesus goes on. He says in verse 24, Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that word money there is is a word that can encompass money as well as just possessions and things. But here's what's interesting about what happens right after this. There's a therefore right after this section. And you know what he goes on to talk about? Being anxious. When you don't have things, you cannot serve God of money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. We talked about this a little bit last week. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on is not 
life more than food and the body more than clothes. And it goes on to talk about the faithful care that the Father has for his children. But here's my point, is you can love the things of the world and still have very little. And one of the ways that we see that our hearts are wrapped up in our things is when we get anxious about our things. When we get anxious about what we're going to have to eat tomorrow or where our money's going to come from, where we're going to drink and where the clothing we're going to wear. And so none of us, it's, it's possible to be godly and rich. It's possible to be ungodly and rich. And it's possible to be godly and poor. And it's possible to be ungodly and poor based on the condition of your heart. But don't be anxious because God is a faithful father. Verse 5, you've lived in luxury and in self-indulgence. I want to leave you just with two points as we transition to the Lord's Supper together. We talked about the, the wisdom from below earlier in this book. There's a wisdom from above. There's a wisdom from below. And that wisdom from below, at least one of the ways you can describe it is that we have tunnel vision for the temporary. We just can't see beyond the earth. It's earthly in the way that it views things. But the gospel and gospel-centered people, kingdom people, this is the difference for us, that the gospel replaces greed with generosity. Your riches should make you rich in good works. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, it says this, As for the rich in this present age, notably, Paul is granting the fact that there will be rich believers in the church, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The gospel replaces greed with generosity. And the reason it does is because God has been so generous to us. Has he been generous to you? Even if like you're confused by what you do or don't have materially in this world, let me just remind you the fact that if you know Jesus, you've been made everything that you're not. Namely, holy and acceptable and righteous in the sight of God. You're unfathomably rich. Angels peer into your life with a sense of curiosity, like how can this be that this person can be made a part of the family of God? The gospel replaces greed with generosity. But generosity isn't the same as sacrifice. The gospel also replaces selfishness with sacrifice. And I'll close reading this and then we'll transition to Lord's Supper together. In Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, it says this, says, And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The, the land of a rich man produces, produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, Now just take note for a second, how many first-person pronouns are in this run How many I's and my's? Just take note of that, okay? Here's what this rich man says. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What good are they? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think at the very least what we take away from this, and it, it harkens back a little bit to last week, is so when you think about your stuff, your things, your money, your possessions, how often do you speak in first-person pronouns? Do you always speak in first-person pronouns? I'll do this. Or last week, I'm going to go to this such and such a city and I'm going to make a profit. And James's question is like, like, what is your life? Like, who are you to determine what you're going to do tomorrow? Even that you have the capacity to do it. You're like a vapor. You're here one moment, gone the next. And a similar rebuke from this passage is, how could you ever take all your things as just being for you? Everything we have is a stewardship gift from God. Everything we have. Our time, our treasures, our talents. And how are we using it? Are we considering his will and not just our will? As we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, I couldn't shake, you know, the one place that I would connect this to the gospel, maybe in the, the brightest form as we talk about riches, as in Second Corinthians chapter 8. And if you're a, a believer in this room, if you're a Christian and you've come to faith in Jesus, we're getting ready to take a small cracker and a cup to remember his death on our behalf where we can be for, forgiven. And this is central to this. And I want this to be really etched into your heart as we take communion together. As the scriptures depict it this way, Paul depicts it this way, as he's commending the people of God in Corinth to be generous. He says, for you know, be generous, for you know. Hold the things in this world with open hands, for you know. Don't be selfish, be sacrificial, for, for you know. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So when we think about poverty and riches, when we think about communion, we should think about firstly how our generosity is, flows out of the generosity we receive from God in the gospel. Jesus had all the riches. They were all his. Always have been, always will be. But he chose to become poor so that through his act of poverty, you and I might become rich. And he emptied himself on the cross obedient to the Father. And so when you come here today, and you may be struggling with certain things, you may be struggling with greed and selfishness. If those aren't your two particular struggles now, like this gives you a chance to evaluate where you are struggling. Maybe parts of your life that don't align with the Word of God, that don't align with the heart of God, where you know God is calling you to, to move away from them, to confess to Him that they're wrong and move away from them in repentance and that picture of mourning and grief that comes and not taking light things that grieve the heart of God. 
So take time to do that as we take communion together, all the while remembering that riches are yours in Jesus. There's going to be a day where we get to do this with him forever, fully satisfied in him, fully free to to worship him in ways that we only get a small taste of now. Let me invite you to bow your head with me. I invite you to think maybe just for a moment just how this particular text has challenged you, maybe just ways you're confronted in your own greed and selfishness and selfish pursuits and pride. And just ask God for the heart of humility and faith that allows you to trust in him and it gives you the power to to treasure the things that you can't see more than than treasure the things that you can. And God, it's good for us to confess. It's good for us to to grieve the fact that we, we are the ones who have laid up treasure for ourselves. That we are so often the ones who lay up, store up, hoard, the riches of this world for the sake of our own comfort and gain. And more often than we'd like to admit, we are the the ones who live in luxury and self-indulgence, not seeing what we have as a potential to bless other people, not being thankful for it as a gift from you. So in all these things and so many more, God, we confess and we We hurl ourselves upon the mercy of Christ again. We thank you for the free offer of forgiveness that we have through him. The full pardon of our sin because Jesus was crushed for our sin. Pierced through for all of our iniquity. Thank you, God. What thanks could we render to you that would be enough? We'll spend the rest of our tomorrows after this life pouring out words of gratitude to you. Help us to be grateful today.